Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Well, good morning, Harvest. Uh, We are actually going to transition to the sermon uh, but I am going to be doing scripture reading as well, and uh, maybe all of you can be praying as I am uh, up here, uh, hoping for the best, right? So uh, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're going to be in Isaiah 65 this morning, if you'd like to make your way over there. Hopefully by now you are very familiar with the book of Isaiah, as we only have one more week after this. And we'll have uh, Pastor Michael here to end it for us, which is, is so fitting. Uh, and of course, we have the the beauty of the the children as our as our background noise, which is just a it's just a wonderful sound that echoes throughout the church, right? Uh, as I as I was studying our passage this week, there's there something I kept coming back to that I just couldn't really ignore. It's a fundamental truth. It might be the main reason why we read the Bible. And you get tipped off to it right there from the start. Right there in the second half of verse 1. It starts like this. I said. I said. God said. One of the wonders of Christianity is not that we can speak to God. Though we can. But any, anyone can cry out into the void and, and wonder if that's really changing anything. Now, one of the wonders of Christianity is that God speaks to us. We cry out and wait, but he doesn't leave us in the dark. God speaks, and through his word, he acts. Now, if you remember from last week, Isaiah gave us a grim outlook on the sinful human condition. Sinful people waste away because we won't turn to God. And because we won't turn to him, he hides his face. Or so we think. At the end of chapter 64, Isaiah asked, will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? In other words, God, you seem hidden from us. We can't seem to find your face. But we know Jesus says in John 10 that he is the good shepherd. He says in verse 3, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Those who know God hear his voice. They recognize his call. And we've had our turn to speak. But today I want us to grapple with God's words. God speaks definitively. Will we listen? In our passage today, God says, I was ready. I spread out my hands. I will repay. I will bring forth offspring. I will destine. I create. I will rejoice. In these words, we hear the song of the Redeemer. We hear the echo of his gospel. 
If I had to summarize what God is saying, I'd put it like this. In Jesus, God speaks the final word over your life. Those first two words, they give you the comfort to hear all the rest. In Jesus. Do you enjoy fellowship with Christ? Are you in him? And listen to his voice. First, God says, I was ready. Starting in verse 1. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. God definitively says, I have not hidden myself. In fact, he's the initiator. Now, some people say, if God is real, then, then make it more obvious to me. If God is real, then, then convince me with signs and wonder. If God is, is real, then convince me with reason and intellect. But let us not forget that it was after Jesus performed miraculous healings. And after Jesus fed the 5,000, that people heard Jesus' teachings and responded this way in the, in the Gospel of John. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Paul says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But that's not really seeking the Lord where he may be found. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. We have no other message. In Isaiah 65, 1, God says, here I am. Here I am. That doesn't sound like a God who's hidden. That sounds like a God who's eager for us to notice him. That sounds like a God who's even willing to humiliate himself to get noticed by sinful people. So if you want to find God today, why not look to the child of promise that was born unto you? Why not look to the cross of Christ where he died for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you really want a sign that will challenge your reason? How about an empty tomb? Why don't you just try it on? I once sat and watched a debate live between a world-renowned agnostic New Testament scholar and a Christian archaeologist on the reliability of Scripture. And they were debating at this point on whether or not Paul wrote one of the, the letters that was attributed to him. And at one point, the, the New Testament scholar was asked what evidence he would require to change his mind. And he essentially said, I would need to see the Apostle Paul with his ID in hand writing the letter in front of me, and I might believe it. And at some point, you just got to ask, do you really want to find God? Do you really want life with God? Do you really want a fellowship with Him? I mean, I want to be sympathetic here because there are people genuinely seeking the truth and struggling. And I want to encourage you because God has made himself known. He is eager for you to find him. In Deuteronomy 4.29, the Lord says that if you will seek the Lord your God, you will find him 
if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. He can be found. But will you seek him on his terms or on your own? Second, God says, I spread out my hands. In verse 2, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Our problem is not that we seek God and can't find him. God reveals himself. He makes his, way, his ways plain to us. And we, we take even good things from God and bend them towards self-serving purposes. You know, I had a college friend who, who struggled greatly with pornography. The year we, we lived together, he would ask several of his housemates, several of us, to, uh, to hold him accountable. And so he set up software on his computer that would notify us if he visited any websites or viewed any content that he wasn't supposed to. And from the outside, it, it looked like honest accountability. But he knew how to circumvent the system. He knew how to navigate around it undetected. And when I found that out, I, I, I got to be honest, I was borderline angry. Because not only was he struggling, but we all thought he was thriving. See, our problem is not that we don't seek after God. It's that we are sometimes too pagan or too puritanical in our seeking. We will trick ourselves into thinking we're better off than we are. But it's just empty ritualism masquerading as spiritual piety. I mean, just look again at verses 2 through 5. God held out his hands all the day to a rebellious people. God defines their worship like this. Those who, who walk, who provoke, who sit, who eat, who say. This is lifestyle. This is mindset. They've co-opted the rituals of God that were intended to stir their affections for him and repurpose them to coerce God into giving them blessings. They're like how I imagine, maybe not imagine, maybe, maybe more fear. They're how I, I fear life with teenagers will be. They want all the good things you can give them and none of the relationship. We cry foul with God as though he were hidden from us but then go on living our lives as if we think we're hidden from him. What's surprising is that all the day God holds out his helping hand to rebellious people. God is quick to love. God is quick to mercy. But anger? Anger he is slow to. It takes a long time to anger God. But verse 5 says, all the day we provoke him. God is slow to anger, but we do everything to stoke the flames. And here it's the, the people who know God's commandments. The, the people who are supposed to be a sign of beautiful fellowship with God anger him in direct and pointed ways. 
I mean, just consider the Ten Commandments. The, the, the first commandment says what? This is a real question. Yeah, we put it up. Yeah, there you go, right? You shall have no other gods before me. In Isaiah 65, 3, God says, you're, you're making sacrifices and offering to other gods right in front of my face. This isn't a one-time occurrence. This is lifestyle. What's your lifestyle? Imagine thinking that God owes you. Imagine living your life as if God, God owes me because of how I live my life. Imagine thinking, you know how I know that God loves me? Because I read my Bible, and I keep his commandments, and I pray to him, and I love my family, and I serve my community. That's how I know God loves me. Those may be byproducts of a life with God, of fellowship with God. But God loves you because he is love. And he has chosen to set his love on you. Some parents tell their kids, I love you to the moon and back. But God says, I love you from the heavens and back. As far as the sinner is separated from God, does God love you through the cross of Christ? All the day he offers his helping hand. Even this day, he's still offering it. It's still there for you to receive. Third, God says, I will repay. In verse 6, behold, it is written before me. I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap. Both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Now there's a distinction worth making here about our anger and God's anger. Our anger is, is filtered by sin. And we, we tend to be more short-tempered and, and impulsive. But God's anger and judgment are completely just. And it's worth noticing what sinless anger looks like. And here we see that it's, it's slow, it's measured, and it's temporary. It's slow. God's anger is not immediate. It's not impulsive. It's not reactionary. In the text, we see that it's happening over generations. It requires generations to make God anger. We're inclined to grow impatient with God at his patience. We grow impatient at how patient he is with us. But he's not swift in his judgment. He's slow to anger. Second, it's measured. He will not let evil prevail. God is absolutely fair in his anger. I mean, we have to be told an eye for an eye because when someone wrongs us, we want to be, go beyond what's fair. And in high school, my, my friends used to, we used to tag each other's cars just for fun. Uh, we, we'd do stuff like we, we'd put Vaseline on the, the door handles of the cars and we'd, we'd write on the windows with, with car chalk and we'd wrap the cars in toilet paper or saran wrap. Uh, somebody once did, uh, they put saran wrap around the outside of my car. And then they put like a layer of, of jelly and then they wrapped it again. And it's like, I just cut it with scissors. Bam. Like they didn't even think about it. So, uh, but anyways, we, we did, it's, just, it's just for fun. It's just a joke, right? Uh, but one time it happened, one of my friends got over the top mad. I mean, you could, you could see the anger brewing in him. And he's, he's, he starts to see, he's like, I want to take off all their tires. I want to take out the, 
exhausted and just like, dude, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not going to do that. Like, you, you need to just go over there and calm down. You, give me your car keys. Yeah. But, like, just, just go for a walk. Like, let's, it's not, it's not that big of a deal. But God's not, God's not like that at all. He's not short, Tim. He's not, he doesn't, he doesn't, he's measured. In verse 6, God says, it is written before me. In verse 7, he says, I will measure into their laps. God is reasoned in his anger. It's almost like he's, he's calm. He's controlled. He's thought out the consequences ahead of time, and he carries them out with poise. The point is that God will give you exactly what you deserve. Nothing more and nothing less. Now just imagine if you were in Christ when he's making his judgments. God will give you exactly what he deserves. Three, it's temporary. Now this is a bit less intuitive, but, but God's anger has an end date. His love is forever, but his anger is temporary. And I don't say that to make light of sin. Sin is a serious matter. But if you just jump over to look at the new heavens and the new earth that God is creating, God's long-term play is not one of anger, but rejoicing. Fourth, God says, I will bring forth offspring. In verse 8, thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks and the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. Now, what God is saying to us, starting in verse 8, he's, what he's saying to us is he will preserve a remnant to fulfill his promise. And when the Bible talks about a remnant, it means a small portion of the whole who remains faithful to God in the midst of of suffering or judgment. God preserves a few to save the many. And we see this with, with, I mean, lots of occasions in the Bible. We see this with Noah and his family. Noah built the ark through God's provision and moved forward God's redemptive plans. We see this in the story of Joseph. If God doesn't work through Joseph, then the people would perish at the hands of famine. And here, what, what God is pointing us to is, is grapes. He uses grapes to, to make this point to us. In verse 8, it's talking about a cluster of grapes. And at harvest time, God can tell which grapes are ripe and which ones are sour. But God won't throw out the whole cluster just because of some sour grapes. He will wait for the right time, and then he'll separate them. But here's the thing. If God is talking about us as grapes, we're all sour grapes. So what's time going to really do for us? We all should be tossed out. But what we know is that God always preserves a remnant. 
And this time, it's different. This time, God puts himself into the mix. Listen, in Romans 5, Paul says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Through the one, God intends to save the many. All the day, God is holding out his helping hand to rebellious people. He's saying he can graft you in. He wants you to abide in the vine. Through him, you can produce much fruit. God can bring about renewal in your life. He can take what's wasting away and make you a new creation. He says, I will bring forth offspring. I will preserve life through the child of promise. Fifth, God says, I will destine. Starting in verse 11. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart, and you shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. See, our, our lives are not all one big game of luck and misfortune, but are held squarely in the helping hands of God. We want to play the game of religion to control our fate, but God says he will not be played. He doesn't want your empty religion. He wants your heart and surrender to him. He wants you to love him and the one he sent. He wants you to join yourself to him in Christ. All of us, I mean, if we, if we just want to get real, all of us have a deep insecurity about the future. And if you don't, it's because you haven't really thought about it. And we all have a desire to take our lives into our own hands. We may wonder, God, are, are you going to give me everything I need? Am I going to be taken care of? Are you going to take care of my family? Are you really? How can I be sure? Yeah, death is a scary thing. Death is a scary reality. What, what really awaits me at the end of all of this? It feels so final and permanent. But God says, I really wish you wouldn't grasp for control. Because he gets to decide what's final. God has the last word. He will destine. He controls destinies. 
Listen, if Jesus really defeated death, if Jesus really defeated death, then everything is going to be okay. In Ephesians, Paul says, the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead, if you are in Christ, is alive in you. Same one. Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. We think what I wouldn't do to have control of my fate, what I wouldn't do to be certain that everything is going to be fine. That's why so many people turn to religion in the first place. Either God's going to give me the desires of my heart or I'm going to go get it for myself. But the only way to secure your destiny is to give it over to him. Don't try to manipulate God. Don't try to play the gods to make things work in your favor. Instead, trust in the one who's working all things together for the good of those who love him. Love Christ. Trust Christ. Surrender to Christ. Six, God says, I create. God doesn't just bring about a better world. He intends to create a new one. In verse 17, he says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Is your hope big enough and imaginative enough to anticipate this new world order? God isn't just making us an improved version of ourselves. The hope of the Christian life is not that a little bit of behavior modification will make the world much better. Notice that whoever is in Christ, God authors new creation. He writes it over us. He speaks it, and it happens. We think we, we know a thing or two about creating things. I mean, we, we put raw materials together in novel ways. We, we, we might step, step back and say, hey, look at what I made. But God is truly creative. He can make beauty out of nothing. And he knows how to make us glorious and like him. He says we can start putting that on right now. God wants us to cast aside our former way of living. He wants us to put, death, put to death the life of sin and put on the righteousness of Christ because the former thing shall not be remembered. It won't even come to our minds in the new heavens and the new earth. Instead, we will delight in God's creation. We will delight in his handiwork because everything will be his masterpiece just as he intended it. And that's not just future. That's happening now. We're seeing that happen in people's lives now. God is bringing new He's making things new. He's bringing all things. He's going to make all things new. He says, I create. Finally, God says, I will rejoice. I will rejoice. In, in, in verse 19, he says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. 
They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. God is saying with a new heavens and a new earth that this life is not all there is. Maybe your prime years are still ahead of you. Maybe they've passed. Maybe you feel like you still have a lot left in the tank. Maybe you wish there was more to offer. But in Christ, the, the failures of this life don't define us. And for the Christian, the, the joys of this life aren't diminishing. This is just the beginning. Our best days are still ahead of us. When I was 17, I, I worked, at a, worked for a summer at a campground in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. It's a popular touristy type town on the east coast of the United States. And the gig was, was working odd jobs during the day and running family activities at night. There was a, a staff of mainly university students doing this who had come for the summer to build relationships with families and minister Christ. That was our ultimate goal. We were there. We were willing to put up with bad jobs so that we could build relationships, and minister Christ to people. And so at the, the end, to, to, to that end, our, our team would we'd meet once a week for devotion and worship. Just imagine 17, 17 to 21-year-olds. 17, 17 to 21-year-olds. We'd gather, we'd meet in this small room to worship God together for devotion and prayer and worship and there's an older gentleman named George who was a long-term camp resident who heard about our meetings, and he, he actually asked if he could join us. I would guess George was in his 70s at the time. A 70-year-old volunteering to hang out with university students. Not a, a normal occurrence. Well, George had stage 4 cancer. I don't even think he made it past that year. That was 15 years ago. But I can still see George's face light up as he told us, my body may be wasting away, but my spirit feels as youthful and alive as all of you. Today, I think George might be more alive than I've ever felt. See, a life with God gives us new perspective. And God wants us to start looking at this life with our eyes set on the next. He's saying, this is not all there is. Not everything will come to pass for you in this life. You may not get to enjoy all the fruit of your labor. 
you say, that's okay. It's okay. Because you can still work heartily for the Lord. And you can still enjoy the fruit of your labors when they come, giving thanks to God the Father in Christ. You say, it won't always be this way. This life is hard, but my soul is at rest because my God has overcome the grave. This life is hard, but in Christ, God gives me a hope and a future. It's not going to always be this way. He said as much, and in his words, my soul can rest. Because in Jesus, God speaks the final word over our lives. I invite you to bow your heads. Wherever you are this morning, God has spoken a better word over you. Whatever lies you tell yourself, whatever rituals you practice to make yourself believe you're right with God, it's just empty religion. It doesn't produce the righteousness of God. But you can turn from that this morning. You can turn and receive your Savior. and He will give you newness of life. Heavenly Father, we, we give thanks to you because you're a God who wants to be known. You're a God who, who's willing to go to great lengths to make your love known to sinful and rebellious people, to wayward people. God, you take dead things and you make them alive. You take old things and you make them new. God, you make us new creations in Christ. And I pray that you would continue to do that work even this morning. Would you make us new? Would you author a new story? Would you give us a new name in Christ? God, would you do this work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.